Well, good morning, church family. It's been approximately one year since many of us made a commitment to support our Beyond Initiative. And like Pastor Sonny said, we just want to say thank you for your faithfulness. I also want to take a, a moment and provide a brief update on the financial aspects of the project. So first, let's talk revenue. Uh, of the, of the 3.7 that was pledged, we, uh, as of the start of this month, have received 1.5 million of that, which is uh, roughly 40%. And that means uh, we're uh, ahead of schedule as it relates to pledge payments. So thank you, church family. We, we, we can be enthusiastic about that. Yeah. Uh, second, let's talk expenses. So um, here we are. Uh, construction is pretty much complete, and I am very pleased to announce that uh, we are under budget from what we anticipated this past spring. So we can be excited about that as well. Uh, our, what we anticipate in terms of total expenses is $4.4 million, and of that you'll see that $372,000 of that has uh, been devoted for what we're calling Beyond Our Walls, missions and outreach endeavors that will happen outside these spaces. And I also hope that as you walk around here and uh, you, you look at the investment we made in our own walls and you see how the new spaces are being leveraged to deepen the roots of discipleship and to expand our ability to reach more people, that you're excited about that as well. So um, let's do a final update. Let's talk projections for a moment. What happens when we look ahead to November 2021, which is the end of the three-year pledge period. Well, here's what we would anticipate that the church would, uh, as it stands now, uh, take on a debt of 700000 and that's because of uh, the difference between what was pledged through the $3.7 million and, uh, and the cost of the project, $4.4 million. So obviously, this does present a, a little bit of an opportunity. Uh, I, I can't help but think that some of you here right now that are part of our church family weren't here last fall when uh, we all participated in the Beyond Initiative. And let me just say, we are so glad that you're here. Uh, we, we expanded the sanctuary and we built these new spaces with you in mind. And just the fact that you're here, we see that as evidence of God's faithfulness. We're glad you're here. And if for some reason uh, you would want to consider being a part of this and, and joining with us in this special season in the life of our church, I want you to know that as you leave the sanctuary today, you can pick up one of these brochures that will provide a little bit more information about this endeavor. And then you'll also see out there on the tables, we have these Beyond Pledge cards. Or you can go online to our website and you can click on the Beyond tab and you can make a pledge there. And uh, we just, we're so grateful. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your partnership. Thank you for, for looking beyond yourselves and pursuing this discipleship-driven, outreach-focused, kingdom-minded vision. And uh, as all of us leave today, you'll see out there on the tables, we have these cards that has our Beyond theme verse, Ephesians 3.20, written on it. Now, this, uh, this beautiful work of art was actually completed by someone in our congregation. It took some time. There's a lot of just beautiful, intricate detail. The original is actually hanging as you walk into the Discipleship Center. It's on the wall to the right. And uh, we have these cards for everyone. And we want you to take it. Uh, you can put it in your Bible or maybe you'll hang it someplace like the fridge where you'll see it often. 
and it will prompt you to pray because as a church, we want to continue to pray this verse and ask that God would do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think in our lives and in his church for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, as we turn our attention now to the study of God's Word, we'll encounter one of Jesus' most well-known parables. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 19. And as you're turning there, let's acquaint ourselves with the context in which this parable is told. We are near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus has begun to make his way from the region of Galilee, which is up in the north, down to the city of Jerusalem in the south. And he's headed there for the Passover. Now, uh, back then in the, in the ancient Near East, uh, the Passover celebration, this is one of the most important events on the calendar for every Jewish person. The city of Jerusalem swells in size as people from all over begin to make their way to the temple to celebrate God's miraculous deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And, and, and Jesus knows the fate that awaits him in Jerusalem. He's under no illusions. At the close of chapter 18, we see Jesus foretells his death and resurrection for a third time. And as we turn to the start of chapter 19, we find Jesus in the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And his home is in the city of Jericho, which is approximately 17 miles or one day's journey shy of Jerusalem. And after Jesus finishes staying at Zacchaeus's house, he will make his way up the hill to Jerusalem where he will be graded by a, a great fanfare. There's just this great multitude of people that come out from the city to usher him into the city with singing and rejoicing and celebrating and waving palm branches. This is an episode of his life that we refer to today as the triumphal entry. And with this in mind, knowing that this is what Jesus is headed into, let's begin reading now, chapter 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So right away, we're giving the key to unlocking the meaning of this parable. The parable is in response to those who supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear in the very near future. We see anticipation is mounting. Enthusiasm is building. There's a sense of expectation in the air. They're close to Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of power. I mean, surely this is the moment when Jesus is going to make his power play. He's going to make his move and he's going to be crowned king and he's going to establish his kingdom. And instead of riding this wave of enthusiasm, Jesus decides to quell it. He, he wants to correct their misapprehension. Jesus hasn't come to claim the throne at this point in time. He has a different agenda. Just one verse prior to this, in Luke 19.10, we see why Jesus came. He tells his followers, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And in order to do that, this necessitates that Jesus go to the cross and die in our place. Jesus' followers are not wrong to anticipate Jesus reigning as king over a kingdom. That will happen. 
just not immediately. And, and to help the disciples understand the delay and the full realization of his kingdom, he tells this parable. It goes like this. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, this illustration, it might tax our imagination a little bit. Uh, we really don't have this form of government today. We don't have kings and queens and nobility, do we? No, but back then, this would have been a really common practice in the ancient world. It, the, the, the people who are listening to Jesus' parable, they're living in a place called Judea, which is part of the Roman Empire. And within this vast Roman Empire, you have vassal states that are governed by these client rulers. And, and in order for the ruler to rule, he has to have the backing of Rome. So we know, for example, that Herod the Great, in the year 40 B.C., he made the journey to Rome to be crowned king of the Jews. And 40 years after that, at his death, his son Archelaus made the same journey. He went on the same royal errand. And Jesus' listeners would have been aware of this historical context. Now, we need to remember also that back then, that travel wasn't the same experience it is today. Air Italy wasn't running nonstop service between Rome and Jerusalem. Back then, travel would have been a, a time-consuming process. It would have been complicated. It would have been contingent upon the weather. And we need to remember, too, that like a nobleman like this, it's not like he could have made the decision to say, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to schedule a, a weekly Skype call, and I'm going to manage my affairs from afar. That wasn't an option. So in order to make sure that his, his business interests were were continued while he was away, he would have had to delegate responsibility to someone else. He would have had to entrust the administration of his affairs to someone who remained on the ground. And that's exactly what we see happening in the parable. In verse 13, we read this. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come back. Now, by way of context, a mina was the equivalent to three months' wages for a laborer. So we're not talking chump change here, but this isn't an exorbitant sum either. We read on. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. By way of background, we know from reading Josephus the historian that when Archelaus made his errand to Caesar Augustus, that there was a group of 50 Pharisees that followed after him to protest his appointment. And uh, Jesus is, is drawing upon this historical event to provide uh, a spiritual connection that we'll see in a moment. Now, I, I know we just started the parable. We haven't looked at all the details, but does anyone want to guess who the nobleman in our parable represents? Let's hear like Yes, Jesus. And uh, as we think about this, who, who could be of more noble birth than the Son of God? And here's what we know. In the near future, Jesus is going to leave his disciples for a far-off country. After his resurrection, Jesus would ascend into heaven. And we're told in Acts chapter 2 that he was exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus has received 
his kingship. He has been coronated king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who has the name that's above every name. He is the rightful ruler of all, rule, of all, of all kingdoms and all principalities. And, and right now, we are awaiting the consummation of his kingdom. It's inevitable. It's coming. And we don't know exactly when King Jesus is going to return, but this parable gives us insight into what it's going to be like when he does come back. What we'll see in the parable is that when the king returns, some will receive rewards and others will be subject to judgment. Let's continue reading now in verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> it turns out that uh, our nobleman didn't entrust his financial resources to these servants simply because he wanted to grow his portfolio. It turns out he had a slightly different agenda. He uses his absence in this short term entrustment of a little capital as a test of fitness for future responsibility. It turns out that the mina is just a trial sum. And the first servant, he comes forward and he, he reports a, a remarkable gain. He says, uh, Lord, your, your mina has earned 10 more and, and the king is ecstatic. He responds enthusiastically. He says, well done, good servant. There's commendation here. And then the king shares his reason for the enthusiasm. He says, you have been faithful in very little. The king loves good stewardship. And as a result, there's promotion. He elevates them. The servant is given authority over 10 cities. The reward is staggering. It's totally disproportionate to the service. He goes from being responsible for this really modest sum to being like a ruler of an entire region. I think that would be like Dan Cathy coming and knocking on your door and saying, hey, I, I've heard about the way that you manage the concession stand for the booster club for the football games this fall, and I want you to be over all the Chick-fil-A's in the entire Southeast. That'd be a pretty big promotion, wouldn't it? But that's kind of what's going on here. The, the king is exceedingly generous to those who have been faithful in his absence. And this is a biblical theme. We read in 2 Timothy 2.12 that if we suffer with Christ, that we'll also reign with him. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul says that we're going to judge angels. Romans 8 tells us that we're not just heirs of God, that we're, we're co-heirs with Christ and for those who serve well here, there's this promise of future responsibility and privilege in Jesus' coming kingdom. 
And we see the second servant's situation mirrors that of the first. Although not as substantial, he too has generated a profit. And his master's reward is proportionate to his stewardship. A five mina yield results in authority over five cities. And the point that is being made here is that faithfulness during the king's absence is rewarded at the king's return. If you're taking notes and you want to know the theme of the parable, write this down. Faithfulness during the king's absence is rewarded at the king's return. And we see that the greater the faithfulness, the greater the reward. And we also discover that not all of the servants are faithful. Not all of them heeded the instruction of the master. Continuing now in verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Question mark. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. So in contrast to the first two servants, this other servant has not labored or conducted business with his mina. And knowing that this was not likely to please his master, he decides to concoct this flimsy excuse. He decides to blame the king, which is never a good idea. He, he puts it back on his master, and in the process, he insults his character. He said, well, um, the reason I did nothing with the mina is because uh, I, I know that you're a hard man. And you go and you, you try and reap a harvest where you did not sow. Now let's just think for a minute about this accusation. Based on how we've seen the king interact with the first two servants, is there any grounds for him to say this? No. The, the king has proven himself to be very generous. He hasn't proven himself to be a hard or demanding or exacting man. So the king says, all right, you know, you want to try that excuse on me? Well, let's just, let's just go with your rationale for a minute. Let's just assume, assume for a moment that what you're saying is true. <laughs> Why in the world didn't you just at least take my money, go down to the bank uh, where there's no risk of failure, and it could at least earn something? We see that the real reason for the third servant's failure to do anything with the mina was at best indifference to the king's wishes, and at worst, he was insolent. And so the king judges the servant on the basis of his own presupposition. His mina is taken from him, and it's given to the one who already has ten, and the king's servants object to this. They say, that's not fair. But let's just think about this for the moment. Even this judgment right here, this decision, this reveals something important about the heart of the king. It reveals his generosity. He could have taken that mina and he could have kept it for himself, couldn't he have? But the king doesn't do that. He gives it to one of the servants. 
This underscores his, his gracious nature and the high value that he places on stewardship and faithfulness. And I, I think we can understand why the king would be upset with this servant. I mean, let's just kind of put this in more contemporary terms. Let's just uh, assume for a moment that you're 18 and your parents have said they're going to go out of town for a night and they come to you and they say, hey, this is the weekend. We're leaving Saturday morning. Your, your sister, she's, uh, she's got a birthday party at 11 and your younger brother, he's got a soccer game later that afternoon. Here, here's, here's $150. This is for gas. This is for food. I want you to take your sister to the party, your brother to the game. Uh, here, go, go out to eat wherever you guys want. We'll be back Sunday afternoon. And let's suppose that your parents come back and the house is a wreck. Your sister hasn't been to the party. Your brother hasn't been to the game. They've had to forge for themselves all weekend long. The money's still on the kitchen counter because as soon as your parents left, you sat down on the couch and started binge-watching Netflix and haven't gotten up since. Think the, think the parents would be a little upset? Yes. The servant knew what he was supposed to be doing, and he didn't do it. If the, if the first two servants represent people who are faithful in Jesus' absence, who does the third servant represent? It's tough to say exactly. I'm not sure if this is a believer who is saved as if one escaping from the flames, as Paul would talk about in 1 Corinthians 3, or if this is a false disciple, an unbeliever. Either way, can we agree this isn't someone we should aspire to be? Can I get some north-south? Yes. At, at the end of the day, this guy is judged. And as we look at him, here's what we know about him. This is an individual who's related to the king. He's associated with the king. He's part of the king's community. He, he, he's invited to have some measure of responsibility in it. But by his actions, we see that he doesn't really care about the king. And I'm, I'm concerned by this. I'm I'm troubled by this because I know that there are people like this today in churches all over our country, people who are tangentially connected with the things of God. Yeah, they might go to church on occasion. They might even have their name on a membership roll. They might even know some Bible verses. But there's no real engagement in the work of God. They're not doing anything with the opportunities that God has given them. They're just too busy. Or it's not the right season. Or it's not their calling. Or they don't feel led. Or they're trying to discern where God would want them to serve. And it's been five, six, seven, ten years since they've been saying that. And I think the king would want to say, really? Really? I debate even going down this road because I don't want anyone to think that somehow that we can be saved through our works, through our efforts, by doing good things for the king. Hear me. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But we need to remember that this parable 
isn't about how we gain entry into the kingdom. This is a parable about what the king expects from his servants during his absence while we await his return. And I know that there are some of you out here that, that have been very faithful with your mina. And the last thing I would want to do is to, to try and put some weight on your shoulders. We, uh, we, we do not have a savior who is somehow measuring our faithfulness according to, to some kind of production quotas. We do not have a legalistic savior. There are some in this room that are so faithful. You're, you're using your gift of hospitality to serve on the coffee bar team. You're helping in Kids Rock or Noah's Ark. You're serving at the jail and prison ministry. You're, you're taking your financial resources and you're using those to support the work of God. And if that's you, this parable should be an encouragement to you this morning. Because one day you are going to hear the commendation, well done, good servant. There is a reward awaiting you. Be encouraged by this. But for some of you, this, this parable should be sobering. If you inventory your life and you know that the, the, the sum total of your, of your kingdom activity is attending a one-hour worship service once a week, whenever it's convenient for you. This is a parable you need to take to heart. Jesus is speaking to you right now, this morning. And I suspect one of two things needs to happen. Either one, your attitude towards the master needs to change. Maybe you're not excited about the king's business because you don't have a right understanding of who the king is. Maybe you think Jesus is this demanding taskmaster and you don't want to be subject to him because you don't want him telling you what to do. And I want you to know something. It's not like that at all. You need to get to know him. Jesus wants you to know his loving and generous and gracious nature. He is the only king who has ever died to bring people into his kingdom. You can't have a better master than that. And when you realize his true nature, and, and you decide to make him savior and king of your life, it, it's really easy to get excited about serving someone like that. Or maybe it's number two. Maybe you have made the decision at some point in time for Jesus to be your king, and you've just kind of, you forgot what that really means. And you need jarred out of spiritual complacency. Maybe you've become so comfortable with the gifts that the king has given you that you've forgotten about his affairs. Maybe, maybe you've become so cozy with the resources that the king has entrusted to you that, that you're no longer tending to his interests. And if that's the case, God wants you to know that he's given you those talents, he's given you those resources, he's given you those opportunities because he wants you to engage in his business. And I hope this parable will be the equivalent of a, a messenger returning from Rome with news that the newly crowned king is on the way home. And I hope as you hear this, it will motivate you to, to go and to, to take your mina, 
to take those gifts that God has given you and take them out of the handkerchief and, and put them to work because the message that Jesus would have for us today is use it or lose it. And there's still time to use it. Well, there's one more group of people that the king deals with. We see this in verse 27. We see the king interact with his foes, with those who oppose him. He says, but as far as these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow. Uh, those, are, those are harsh words, are they not? And uh, I think a lot of us would just assume that wasn't in the Bible, but I checked, it's there. Um, and you know, it, uh, it's, it's not the first time that, that Jesus has used a really shocking analogy to illustrate the character of God. In, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable of a returning master and ends with the dismemberment of an unfaithful servant. And, and, and as troubling as this is, I think the fact that this is even in the Bible, that these strong words are here, is evidence that Jesus actually said this. Because let's just think about it for a moment. If you and I were concocting these stories and we're like, hey, we're going to just write this down and we're going to attribute it to Jesus, would we ever have thought to include something like this and risk offending so many people? No, we wouldn't include this. But when you sit back and think about it, if, you, if your mission is to seek and to save the lost, and you know that the eternal destiny of your listeners is at stake, then, then, then such strong words might be a very loving way of helping people realize the seriousness of what's at stake and helping them escape their apathy and indifference that is otherwise going to lead to destruction. I think that's what makes the most sense here. Jesus wants people to realize that, that it's in their best interest to embrace them, embrace him as their king. And you know what? If you're opposed to Jesus, you can choose to reject him. But at the end of the day, here's what this parable reveals, that you're still in his world. You're still under his authority. It's like choosing to reject gravity. You can say, oh, uh, I'm going to deny the existence of gravity, and I'm going to try and live as if it doesn't exist. But guess what you're going to discover? You're still subject to gravity, aren't you? And it's the same way with Jesus. His is the name that's above every name. And one day, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he will reign forever and ever, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. You know what's interesting about this parable? All the servants are giving something. Everybody's given a mina. Everyone has something to steward. We all have a responsibility before our coming king. He asks us to engage in his business while he is away. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we living in light of his return? Does our calendar, does our checkbook, do, do our conversations reflect the fact that we're engaging in his business 
Is there evidence of gospel service and generosity and evangelism? Are we using our spiritual gifts? Are, are we looking to take care of the needs in our own body? Perhaps you recall what that first servant told the king when he was called to give an account. He said, Lord, your mina has made ten more. He recognized who the ultimate owner was. He said, your mina has had ten more. You know, this is the key to becoming a faithful servant. It all starts right here. Faithful servants know that everything they have is a gift from God. They're simply temporary managers. What they have is on loan from God. And for some of us, what you have right now, what you possess in terms of resources and talents and opportunities, that will be the extent of God's blessing on your life. This is the high water mark. But for others, for those who recognize what it means to be a steward of the king, for those who are engaged in the affairs of the king, what you have right now in the present pales into comparison to what you're going to have in the future. Because King Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reward those who have been faithful. And he's going to entrust them with the joy of being a participant with him and reigning. And that's good news. I want to give us all just a moment to, to process, to, to let the, the Spirit of God take the Word of God and let it examine our hearts. So I'm going to invite everybody just, you can close your head or close your eyes and bow your head. And our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We know that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. and We know that you would want to take your word and speak to us through it this morning. God, I think of those in your congregation that are in need of encouragement because they're at risk of growing weary and doing good. And I pray that your word this morning will encourage their hearts, strengthen them for every good deed. Lord, I, I think of those here who need a call to action. Those who, without your word, might otherwise be in jeopardy of taking the talents that you've given and burying them in a handkerchief. And God, I, I, I pray that there would be activity that would be pleasing to you. Lord, take your word and make it the sobering wake-up call it needs to be so that we can be people that would hear that commendation from you. Well done, good servant. And Lord, for the person here who needs a warning, for the person who is right now opposed to your rule, who doesn't want you to reign, Lord, I pray that you would take back the scales from their eyes and they would see the beauty of submitting to a king like Jesus, a king who's generous and gracious, a king who's died in their place 
to make them a part of your wonderful kingdom. God, we would invite you to come and have your way in us, and we pray that this message today, our time in your word, wouldn't just be some information that would go into our mind, but there would be transformation, and then we walk from here. We would be the servants, we would be the disciples, we would be the followers of you that you would want us to be, and that we would be very pleasing to you. And we pray all these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.